1: Hello and welcome to this very special episode of Who Killed Amy Maholovic? I am your host, Bill Huffman, and on this week's episode, and for the next few weeks up until the 30-year mark of Amy's disappearance, I will be releasing a special episode each Friday. I will have new interviews as well as some new discussions and new suspects. So please join me for the next four episodes of of who killed Amy Mihalovic?
2: I see it being solved through uh, information provided by the public. I really do. You know, we have a vast amount of information, some of which we can piece together, some of it we can't. So I, I'm really of the belief there's someone out there who has direct or very closely direct information about who did this. Either they heard something, it's a relative, somebody confided in them. You know uh, deathbed confession something someone out there other than the killer knows what happened
0: well again we don't we don't know i mean what we have here we know where she was abducted from right we have the body disposal site
2: so we had
1: two scenes
0: we're looking yeah there's a there's a, at least a, a third spot and that's that's one of the things that's important about that curtain and that blanket that's that item is possibly from you know that in-between spot where this happened Uh, and that's why we put that out there
2: oh yeah yeah and I'm not I'm not saying what they did uh, 28 years ago was bad right it's just
1: Phil Torres Torres town. yeah
0: but you know one of one of our goals uh, recent goals anyway has been to get some uh, nationwide publicity we've had a ton of publicity here you know in, in the Cleveland area Bay Village Ashton County Ohio but uh, you know, it's possible that the individual who did this is living somewhere else. And there's maybe a similar case in California or Washington State, you know, Florida, uh, that either a police officer might recognize from the past or a victim or a, uh, 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 you know, just somebody from another state that wasn't aware of all the publicity around here that's going to hear about this through, you know, this podcast or another um, sort of national.
1: Thank you again for joining me on this very special episode of Who Killed Amy Maholovic? It has been just over a year since I published the first episode of Who Killed Amy Maholovic? and it has gone the way that I thought it would. Apparently, I must have done something right because I've acquired more than 1 million downloads a hundred new tips have come in. An investigation discovery documentary was aired, not due to my podcast, but I did appear on it. And I actually made an appearance at CrimeCon in New Orleans. As well as there were a number of media stories in Cleveland.com or Cleveland Magazine or even your local news stations about the podcast and how this was going to bring new attention to the case that had been unsolved for 29 years. Well... It's coming on the 30-year anniversary, and it remains unsolved. So despite the podcast and in spite of the documentary, we still don't have any answers. So, as I mentioned, October 27th will mark 30 years since Amy's been missing. And that day started off like any other. You know, she packed her backpack, kissed her mom goodbye hopped on the blue bike, and rode off to school. But it was two things that made that day different. One, Amy was carrying a very heavy secret. And two, she never came home. It was a warm day for Northeast Ohio in October, with temperatures in the 70s. And having grown up in the suburb next to Bay Village, where Amy was abducted, I understand how normal and common it is to ride your bike to school, especially if the weather allows it this late in the fall. Amy had told her mom and dad that she had a choir tryout after school and would be home a little late. Neither parents questioned Amy's story because she had never lied to them before, and why would she start now? Margaret had just become a full-time employee at Trading Times, and Mark was a full-time employee for Buick, and his job, he was a rep for the automobile maker and would travel from dealership to dealership and he had a zone meeting the day that Amy went missing down in Cincinnati. Now Amy's brother Jason was just a year ahead of her but he didn't notice anything unusual on that day. So as Amy pedaled away that Friday morning nobody in the Mahalovic family knew how much their life would change in less than 10 hours. A normal day became anything, but when Amy didn't come home that night. The last time Amy spoke with her mother was when she called to check in after school. There have been some reports saying that Amy sounded a bit distant, but we were taking that from Margaret, and she was obviously not in a state where she could think clearly. We've all heard stories of families being in a complete daze after a tragedy such as this. So to take Margaret at, his, at her word I don't know it's been 30 years so with Amy being abducted on a Friday it was a time where most families were actually heading to football games or planning weekend activities there was a bank robbery in North Homestead so the FBI's reactive squad which included Phil Torsney who was the man who caught Whitey Bulger and he is now a retired FBI consultant. So he is actually in charge of the special task force for the Amy Maholovic case. Now I sat down with Phil and I asked him a bunch of questions about where the case stood and how he thought it would end. And I'm going to give you just a couple of the highlights of what he said. Uh, the sound quality isn't the best. Uh, Phil didn't want to uh, wear a, Certain mic, so it is what it is. So just bear with the sound quality. Uh, I do have some better sound quality with Chief Spetzel. and uh, just take a, take a listen to uh, what Phil had to say in regards to the case.
0: Yeah, Phil Torzny. I'm currently employed as a uh, investigator with the Bay Village Police Department, uh, working on the Amy Mahalevich case.
1: Uh, I was a
0: special agent with the Federal Bureau of Investigation uh, for. 29 plus years here in Cleveland, also in Atlanta, and lastly in Boston, at the Boston office of the FBI. Yeah, I was well. I worked fugitives here in Cleveland almost my whole career. Fugitives, bank robberies on the reactive squad we called it. We reacted to crime that had occurred, and uh, I worked on the squad here for almost 25 years. Uh, was on a fugitive task force, and uh, I had worked on the Whitey Bulger case in Boston. Uh, on a temporary basis for years trying to, you know, work with the Boston office and agents there to try to locate Bolger, who was an FBI top 10 fugitive. And I always wanted to be involved in arresting a top 10 fugitive. And eventually they transferred me to Boston. And uh, while I was there, we, myself and other agents and other uh, law enforcement uh, entities were able to locate Bolger out in Santa Monica, California, and uh, we arrested him. And I I, uh, myself and some other agents brought him back to Boston, and that's, that's that story. And they called it the Reactive Squad. And we, we investigated bank robberies, kidnappings, fugitive matters, any really violent crimes uh, that occurred daily, which occurred daily here in Cleveland, especially bank robberies, extortions, um, truck hijackings, uh, theft from interstate shipment. Uh, But I really, I sort of gravitated toward the fugitive end of things. And I did this when I was in Atlanta, which was my first office, worked fugitive cases there as well. I'll tell you, that it's, um, I was at, the day Amy was abducted, I was in North Olmstead on a Friday afternoon working on a bank robbery on Lorraine Road. And I still, I have the surveillance picture of the robber, and I still keep that because it's, when this bank robbery was going on is about the same time that Amy was walking from middle school here in Bay Village up to that shopping center. So I wasn't far away and there was a bunch of agents down there in North Homestead. But that was a Friday afternoon and we never liked having getting bank robberies on a Friday afternoon because back in those days you had to take the surveillance film to get it developed and then get it out to the news and hopefully somebody had recognized the guy give a call and if you had a Friday afternoon bank robbery a lot of times you'd be, uh, uh, you'd be working till 11 o'clock Friday night, which <laughs> and you know, most- you'd like to get home for the weekend if you could anyway. But you know, that, that happens and that's, that's one of the reactive squad things, we reacted to bank robberies. If it happened on a Friday afternoon we worked it into the night if we had to.
1: So, Phil, how do you feel about all the media coverage? Yeah, I guess
0: one of the important things here is, is just because something's been published uh, through some media outlet, whatever it may be, uh, it, it doesn't mean we're not looking in other directions. And uh, we, we need additional information. It doesn't mean by the publication of that kind of thing and putting out names out there, we have additional information here. Uh, in addition to what's been published, and we base our investigation on, you know, the facts we have, and a little thing that might not have anything to do with with what's been published previously in regards to another tip, more information, or another suspect may add to the information we have here and have knowledge of that will help solve this case.
1: (laughs) Fair enough. When I met with Chief Spetzel, I asked him if he thought the perpetrator would have known that the police station was located directly across from the plaza where he had arranged to meet with Amy.
2: You know, I I don't know how to answer that other than to look at uh, the mindset of that person and try to go back. Um, We think this person is probably familiar with Bay Village, but not necessarily a resident of Bay Village, so we don't know his level of familiarity. Um, But to do what this person did which in in other words was to set up a meeting with Amy, have her go to the Bay Square shopping center area, take her from there to go shopping, that takes a lot to be able to do that, knowing full well what the ultimate result could be when somebody does that. So he had to have some level of of comfort going there, but not so much that um, he would have been identified Because if he walks in there and anybody can identify him, then he's, you know, there's a problem. So it's kind of like an in-between, you know, he's got some familiarity, but not enough that anybody would recognize him is kind of how we look at that. So did he know the police department was across the street? Maybe not. I'm sure he knew that that was a municipal building. Uh, Did he scope it out? We don't know. If he had, he might have seen a police car parked in the the parking lot at City Hall. So it's really hard to say. Um, But he had, I can fairly say that he had confidence in what he was doing, that he felt comfortable enough to be able to go to a place that um, Amy would go and and to basically walk up to her and ask her to leave with him. That takes a lot of guts, and it takes a lot of planning.
1: So I recognize that this police station is generally pretty quiet. What was the mood of the station the day that Amy went missing?
2: Well, we take every missing child seriously, as we did with this one. Uh, But ultimately... Almost in every case, obviously, up to this point, there's a reason, rationale, there's a location where the child is found. You know, it's with a relative, it's, you know, she rode to her friend's house, forgot to tell mom. So these are usually resolved. And I think the, initially we're thinking, okay, we're going to be able to resolve this. It always happens. We're going to find this child, no no problem. But again, like I said, as it got, as the time got farther along and we confirm the fact that she wasn't with relatives, she's not with her close friends, it's getting dark, then you start to get a little bit more worried. Uh, And then it really, like I said, ramps up and you realize that this is not your typical girl who went to a friend's house and we just haven't located her yet. This is something far more significant.
1: So once you realize that this case is more than just a missing girl, what's the next step?
2: With any kind of missing child, you, you kind of work out in concentric circles from the family. So you obviously, if you talk to the family, you look at the family, you know, where were you, what was going on, you know, do all those typical things that you do that are very uncomfortable for a family when they're missing their child, they're grieving, they're distraught, and yet you're asking them questions that kind of, you know, w- would indicate that maybe they had some involvement, but that's part of the process. Not, not comfortable, um, but they have to be done. So really, you kind of had investigations going, looking at the family, and then you're following these other facts that you know from the the uh, friend of Amy's.
1: And I know this is hard for you to answer, since you can't get yourself inside the mind of this individual, and we don't know who he is, but do you think that he would have used Margaret as misdirection to sort of throw Amy off the trail?
2: Uh, you know, obviously, I don't know that because I don't know who this individual is, but I tend to believe that uh, Margaret would have been... Um, The key to that, because I think that, uh, you know, first of all, Margaret and Amy were close. Uh, You know, they rode horses together, they hung out together, they they were more close. And I think that there had to be some factual basis in Amy's mind for this trip to meet this person. And I think that would make sense. And I also think that for them to have the information they did um, implies some familiarity with Margaret. Right, they came forward the next day with that information. Um, and also they came forward with the fact that uh, two, two people at the Bay Square had seen a male with Amy, um, and they both described this male to an artist. And we uh, uh, created a composite drawing from each individual. And, the, and these were both 10-year-olds as well who saw Amy with this individual for a brief second, standing in the area of where the current Bay Barbershop is, actually it was present back then too. But the thing about their witness identification is, you know, this wasn't a struggle. There was no screaming or yelling. This was not a violent abduction or anything like that. They just saw Amy up there like everybody else who was hanging around up there on a beautiful day, going to the, going to the ice cream parlor, or hanging out by the bowling alley, and said hi to Amy and um, at some point saw her standing there by this pole, and then at some other point saw a male standing with her. And kind of one of them indicated that uh, the, this male put her his hand on the middle of her back as if to escort her to the parking lot, and that's all they saw.
1: When was it that you learned more details about Amy's abduction?
2: Definitely uh, at least two, possibly three of her friends had information on This meeting that she was going to have after school with this individual to go buy a gift from her mother. In fact, uh, they talked about that uh, she had $45 to spend and she was going to go to the mall. So there's some pretty specific details within that conversation that she relayed to her friends.
1: When did these witnesses bring these details to your attention? Right. They
2: came forward the next day with that information. Um, and also they came forward with the fact that uh, two two people at the Bay Square had seen a male with Amy, um, and they both described this male to an artist. And we uh, uh, created a composite drawing from each individual. And, the, and these were both 10-year-olds as well who saw Amy with this individual for a brief second, standing in the area of where the current Bay Barbershop is. Actually, it was present back then, too. But the thing about their witness identification is, you know, this wasn't a struggle. There was no screaming or yelling. This was not a violent abduction or anything like that. They just saw Amy up there, like everybody else, who was hanging around up there on a beautiful day, going to the, going to the ice cream parlor or hanging out by the bowling alley, and said hi to Amy. And, um, at some point saw her standing there by this pole. And then at some other point saw a male standing with her and kind of one of them indicated that, uh, the, this male put her his hand on the middle of her back as if to escort her to the parking lot. And that's all he saw.
1: So you have these two eyewitnesses and they met with an artist. How long was it before you ended up putting out the composite sketch?
2: So you've got these two people who saw this, uh, thought it was father, no idea, but just happened to notice it. And I always kind of look at it as this way. It's very similar to like if you're walking down the mall, in a mall, and you kind of bump shoulders with somebody, and you look at them and you keep walking. Somebody comes to you a day or two later and says, hey, I need a detailed description of that individual because he he did something in the mall that I need to know. Now, factor in the fact that it's a 10-year-old that got bumped into and has to provide that description, you know, that's the reliability of that information. And not to say that it's not important. It's extremely important. But what we don't want to see happen is people put all their faith in that drawing that, hey, if he doesn't look like him, it can't be him or, you know, vice versa. Uh, But at the time on October 28th, 29th, that's all we had. So we put out those drawings um, and what we got was a flood of lookalikes who may be the suspect because they look just like that person. The jawline is the same, you know, the glasses are the same. And we had to go with that because that's all we had, you know. So that general description is probably fairly accurate, but certainly not conclusive one way or the other.
1: Let's hear from this week's sponsor. Having dealt with anxiety and depression for most of my life, I know a thing or two about the importance of mental health. So today I'm pleased to tell you about a great company, Is there something that interferes with your happiness or is preventing you from achieving your goals? BetterHelp Online Counseling is there for you. Connect with your professional counselor in a safe and private online environment. It's so convenient, you can get help on your own time and at your own pace. And now you can schedule secure video or phone sessions, plus chat and text with your therapist. With over 3,000 U.S. licensed therapists across all 50 states, BetterHelp is there for you. If you're not happy with any of your counselors for any reason at any time, you can get a new one for no additional charge. They even have apps for your computer or smartphone. Whether you're suffering from depression, anger, stress, anxiety, LGBT matters, or self-esteem issues, they have a licensed professional counselor for you. And everything you share is confidential. Best of all, it's a truly affordable option. Who Killed Amy Maholovic listeners get 10% off your first month with discount code WHO. So why not get started today? Go to betterhelp.com who. Simply fill out a questionnaire to help them assess your needs and get matched with a counselor you'll love. That's betterhelp.com who. Are you guys certain on how many phone calls Amy actually received from this perpetrator?
2: One, one or more. We don't know how many. Uh, she, didn't, yeah, she didn't really allude to that to her friends, but uh, given the circumstances, w- we believe there's probably more than one call. Uh, Margaret did a pretty good job with Amy of, of trying to protect her and telling her you don't go with strangers. They even had a, a secret word that somebody had to use if somebody was going to pick her up other than her mother and father. So even back then, she was pretty, uh, pretty good at trying to protect her daughter. So for Amy then to, and she was relatively shy. You know, smart girl, but relatively shy. So we don't think she just would have hopped in the car with anybody. So there had to be some familiarity, again, whether it was gained through phone calls or some other method, we don't know, but we know there was at least one phone call. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night.
0: Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the
1: end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Now over 30 years, I would assume you have thousands of tips and hundreds of suspects that you've interviewed... Do you guys keep this stuff in, like, a database that is easily accessible to anybody that's investigating Amy's case? Look
2: alike leads. Okay. So we literally got hundreds a day of lookalike leads. So everything was documented. Everything was eventually put into a database. And those lookalikes range from, you know, I was driving down I-71, and I saw a male in a car, and there was a young female in the car with them, and that's all they got. It was a red car. So, you know, you obviously, some of these you you eliminate because there's nothing you can go by, and others are more specific. Uh, you know, this individual looks like him. And then from there, of course, you can go back and establish alibis. So there were hundreds and hundreds of those types of leads. And again, at the same time, you're looking at uh, your typical investigative techniques. You're looking, okay, who would know this child to be able to walk up to him in the middle of the day at a shopping center and walk away with her? There's got to be some familiarity. So you look at people that might be close to Amy. You start doing that, of course. And then you start looking at, since the, it involved Margaret, the mother, being given a gift, is there somebody who knew that Margaret got a promotion or a job change that you know would have resulted in a gift being purchased? So all that's going on at the same time. What somewhat muddies the waters in this case, and, and although it was inevitable, there's not much you can do about it, was the lookalike tips that came in ate up a lot of resources and time. So you have to look at those because, like uh, you alluded to, Mark Moholovic said, you don't know which one of those tips is not the right one. You, you just don't know until you follow it through. So we took everything um, and ran with it, and it, it was overwhelming, despite the fact that, you know, we're a small department. We had 24 police officers at the time, but we did obtain the resources of the FBI. We had over 50 agents working in this case at one time. So even with all those resources— it was still a little bit overwhelming to work that case, and and from the beginning because of the volume of calls. I literally uh, was new then, of course, and one of my jobs was to answer phones, and this is the back in the day when you had the little phones with the push buttons that would light up when a call came in. Mm -hmm. Those lights never went off. You would literally finish a call, hit the next button, and take another tip, and it just went on and on and on. And that's a great thing because that means people are involved and they're engaged and they're looking at it. Uh, And then the flyers went national, so you're getting calls from outside the area. Uh, And all that, like you said, has to be sifted through and gone through to make sure. And we have looked at those things several times. This case has never been a cold case. We've always looked at it, and that's one of the areas we've done. Let's go back and look through all the, the tips that we really didn't follow up on, make sure we're not missing something. And the reason we're we we're conducting an electronic database now of everything because we don't know what tip back in 1989 will become important in 2018 because we got new information. So all that has to be retained. All of it has to be searchable in some format uh, so that if another tip comes up, we can search our database and try to find connections.
1: Now with Amy's comfort level with the perpetrator, do you think he called her more than once? You know this case has had
0: ups and downs, ups and downs. But but you know one of the things, at least she told somebody about that phone call. Uh, otherwise, it's possible. I mean, she would have gone up to that shopping center if she had really kept it a secret, and we wouldn't have known her purpose in going up there. She told associates about the gift and the phone call. And you know we're obviously we've obviously looked at cases which have a similar um, setup. Uh, because of, of that, because Amy told people about that. If we hadn't known that, and that's why we still look at cases where there's missing girls or girls, young girls that have been the victims of uh, homicide, where it's really unknown what led up to them being abducted. You know, whether it was just somebody who, you know, it was a spur of the moment thing, or whether there's a, a planning process like we have here. And and in this case, it's somewhat an, an unusual case in that there was prior planning like, like this. And we've talked to, you know, FBI behavioral people and, and a lot of people about that kind of thing. And, you know, the planning uh, and the prior contact and, uh, you know, what the thought that this person put into this makes it somewhat different than the normal case Um where, you know, a young girl was abducted and murdered.
1: While I was producing the podcast, I actually asked Phil Torsney what it was that he hoped to gain by participating in the podcast as well as the documentary on the Investigation Discovery Channel, The Lake Erie Murders.
0: I'm not here all the time.
1: But, you know, one of, one of our
0: goals, uh, recent goals anyway, has been to get some Uh, nationwide publicity. We've had a ton of publicity here, you know, in in the Cleveland area, Bay Village, Ashton County, Ohio. But, uh, you know, it's possible that the individual who did this is living somewhere else. And there's maybe a similar case in California or Washington State, you know, Florida, uh, that either a police officer might recognize from the past or a victim or a... uh, 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 you know, just somebody from another state that wasn't aware of all the publicity around here. That's going to hear about this through, you know, this podcast or another um, sort of national
1: well, podcast. Are international, so well, this will even if he's overseas, yeah. he will right
0: Canada that kind of thing. Because you know, it, this seems you know initially it seemed like it was somebody who has no doubt familiarity with Bay and and you know the rural areas southeast of here, southwest of here. But it doesn't mean a similar crime wasn't committed somewhere else, and there's some officer somewhere who took a report on something like this. Uh, and that we, we keep looking at those cases throughout the country. We've accessed various websites or you know uh, criminal kind of uh, uh, computer sites looking for similar cases with the with the gift and the phone call and the uh, you know the age group of the young girl and that kind of thing. So. Um, yeah, we're, we're looking nationwide at this point. Yeah, it also doesn't mean, yeah, he's not
1: just living in the area still, potentially. I mean, he yeah. could be anywhere people, in the...
0: People move. He could have done this before, something similar before, could have done it afterwards, could have gone to prison for something like this for a period of time, therefore stepped out of the public eye or stepped out of the uh, potential for getting caught. During the time he was in prison, maybe did 10 years, maybe did two years, maybe did 15, 20, got back out and started doing the same thing in another way.
1: Well, this podcast is supposed to bring the attention that this case deserves and uh, hopefully will help provide the uh, publicity that you're looking for and uh, the closure that the community and the family needs. Good. So thank you again. All right. Thank you. Thank you again for listening. I just wanted to give everybody a brief synopsis on the case and explain how crazy it's been over 30 years. I personally still cannot get over the fact that Amy was called at her home, convinced to meet a strange man for an innocuous reason, and the next thing you know she ends up kidnapped and murdered. I don't know anything that could be more violating than having Amy be called in her safe place and lured out. It's just so hard for me to wrap my head around. Amy was a bright girl. She would have, or should have, been able to know that this person meant her harm. If not right away, soon thereafter. Now again, this was 1989, and people could make prank phone calls or lewd phone calls, because there was no such thing as star 69 or what we're all used to now, caller ID. Back then it was like the Stone Age. The only calls logged were long distance, because those would have charged money. If you lived within the 216 area code, which in 1989 covered most of Northeast Ohio, then your phone number would never have shown up on a phone bill. This person had the gall to call Amy's parents home and begin the grooming process. It is shocking to this day that someone would put themselves out there like that, especially in a busy shopping plaza that just so happens to be across from the police station. I was the same age as Amy when she was taken, so her case has always stuck with me. Plus, I still shop in that same plaza where Amy was last seen. And I know I'm a true crime guy, so I think about that kind of stuff, but I assure you I am not the only one. In the next few weeks, I will bring you some new interviews with the key players and see what progress has been made on the case. I am aware of the three hairs they supposedly have, and you could hear about that in part one of my roundtable discussion on the ID Channel's documentary, The Lake Erie Murders, that I did with James and Nick from True Crime Garage. So come with me on this journey to get this case back out in the spotlight because I believe it is still solvable. So thank you again for listening. You can follow me on Twitter at BillHuffman3. And if you enjoy this independently produced podcast, you can help support the show by clicking on the donate button on the bottom right-hand side of com, or via my Venmo app with my username at BillHuffman3. Any amount is appreciated, and it does help keep the recorders running. If you enjoy this podcast, please leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. It will help support the show and help keep Amy's story in the spotlight. You can contact the Bay Village Police Department at 440-871-1234 if you have any new information. The FBI is offering a reward of up to $25,000 for information leading to the arrest and conviction of the individual or individuals responsible for the death of Amy Renee Mihaljevic. So again, anyone with information concerning this case please contact the FBI at 1-800-CALL-FBI. Thank you again for listening, and until next time, be safe. Come play with us.